1: Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York after a mixed bag in New Jersey last weekend where I was playing in the online Super Circuit series or whatever they called this one. I can't keep track of all the different tournament series they've had on my new favorite website, WSOP.com. I... As many of you know, if you follow me on Twitter, at Clayton Comic, I did win a tournament. It wasn't one of the big ones, though. So I was in town for about four days playing basically everything except for the $1,000 high rollers. And I had a few small caches in some of the dailies, and in one of the circuit events, I went fairly deep. Maybe, like, final four tables, something like that. But mostly it was nothing to write home about until... Uh, last Sunday, the last day I was there, I won a $4,500 guaranteed tournament that actually had a almost a $6,000 prize pool when all is said and done. It has rebuys and add-ons, and a lot of the players in it took that as their cue to go ahead and splash around and rebuy an add-on. But I think that's a mistake, and I've talked about this before, but I think it's worth repeating in case you didn't catch that episode If you're in a tournament that has rebuys and add-ons, it makes a huge difference to your bottom line whether those rebuys and add-ons are raked, and if so, to what extent. So in this particular tournament, I believe it's something like $6.50 with a $0.50 entry fee, and they charge that whether you're doing your initial buy-in, whether you're rebuying, or whether you're adding on. So with that in mind, it is a mistake to play the old school rebuy and add-on strategy of, oh, I'm just going to keep putting money in because the theory, if they're not raking the rebuys and add-ons, is that by playing a wild aggressive style in the early stages of this type of tournament, you actually give yourself a better chance of getting most of that money back when you win first place in the tournament. At least that's the theory that a lot of players in the old school would subscribe to when they did not rake rebuys and add-ons. Casinos never used to be this greedy. Online poker never used to be this greedy. Now they are actually raking every dollar you put in to these tournaments. So for that reason, I think it's very important that when you're playing this type of tournament, you don't adapt that old school wild child style for the first hour or whatever the rebuy period is But rather you play more of a standard style. And I don't even think it's wise to necessarily take a rebuy right away as soon as you buy in. In the old days, I remember uh, (laughs) there was a tournament at the Sands Casino in Atlantic City that I used to play very early in my career. This tournament was a $20 buy-in with a $10 entry fee with rebuys and add-ons. So what that means is that back then you pay $30 to sit down and the casino gets $10 right off the top. And then throughout the re-entry period, which I believe was about 90 minutes. If you wanted more chips, you could, you could buy another, I think they started us with 4,000 chips. You could buy another 4,000 right away for $20. As soon as you sat down at the table and none of that $20 went to the house. All of it, 100% of it went to the prize pool. So that's a fun tournament. You know, you're buying in for 30, you give them another 20, you get some more chips. You can kind of go a little bit crazy with, with those chips, or at least theoretically you can. I'm not saying just to spew it, but, you know, go ahead and take your coin flips. Try to build a big stack because all of that extra money is going to be going to the prize pool and some of you won't remember this, but back then, this would have been maybe like 2004, 2005. Back then, in most major casinos, they would pay 50% to first place. So one time I won this (laughs) $20 tournament with rebuys and add-ons and it was like a $3,000 prize. And that might not sound like a lot to you. I'm not sure how you'll feel about that if you're an online player. But let's point out that the Sands Poker Room had like 15 tables. And I believe that tournament attracted like 120 players. So if you really do the math, that's ridiculous that I won $3,000 in that tournament. But it shows you how wild and aggressive everybody used to be during the rebuy and add-on period. And just how much bigger the prize pool can get when the greedy casino doesn't keep taking a rake out of every single rebuy and add-on. So that's my little dissertation about that. I'd love to get your thoughts as well. If you are a player on WSOP.com or any site that has RNA style tournaments, do you think it does make sense for players to change their style based on whether or not the additional monies are being raked? So yeah, let me know what you think. So anyway, I did win that tournament. I think it was in the neighborhood of 1700 and some dollars. So uh, that was pretty cool because you know the week in general was rather lackluster. Profitability on WSOP.com has been, let's say, <laughs> declining in the last few months. Now, I don't know how much of that is running bad. And I also don't know how much of that is my opponents kind of getting a feel for who I am and how I play more so than they had when I first joined the site earlier this year. Uh, It's too early to tell. I don't have a large enough sample size to really know whether this is just an ebb and flow of the game or whether I'm actually uh, less profitable in general than I used to be on the site. Of course, as always, I will be happy to share with all of you whatever revelations and discoveries come out about this as this developing story continues. But for now, I just wanna thank you guys, those of you who reached out to congratulate me on my little bink there. They had like something like 360 players-ish. And uh, yeah, it's always nice to win a tournament. And as you guys know, I hardly ever show up to the final table without a big stack. And this tournament was no exception. I showed up at the final table with the chip lead and I gave it up four-handed but got it back very quickly and managed to emerge victorious so thank you again for cheering me on you know it, it feels good I'm not gonna lie it feels good uh, poker is such an isolated individual sport feeling like I have some of you guys in my corner it just puts a smile on my face I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that it doesn't um, I wanted to let you guys know speaking of putting smiles on faces I am doing something this Saturday, the 12th. I believe you'll be hearing this on December 11th. So coming up tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day it's released. Yeah, this Saturday, December 12th at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, I will be doing final table commentary for a brand new thing called World College Poker. So I'm very excited. It's the fall brawl final table, and your commentators will be yours truly, along with the great Alex Fitzgerald, TPE coach, a guest on the podcast many times, and personal friend of mine. So we're going to have some fun. They think it's going to be three or four hours. You can watch the college kids battling it out this is really something new and something different that they're that they're creating and it's really picking up a lot of steam I believe they have over 1,000 entries for this thing and it's an app it's on poker Bros the app and as you may or may not know colleges around the world have poker clubs kind of like when I was in college we did we had chess club and you know different kind of games you can play well a lot of these college kids are very into poker so there's a whole new generation of poker loving college students and they did not have to pay to enter this event it's not legal for people that are only college age to gamble so instead what they've got is a, a, a number of sponsors so there'll be prizes and just come on youtube and check it out uh there's a link on my twitter at Clayton Comic. You can find it. You can also just go on YouTube and look for World College Poker. So I'm very excited to have been asked to co-host and stream their very first ever final table. So, uh, yeah, please come and, and check it out. I think it's going to be fun, and I guarantee there will be shenanigans. All right, now let's talk about Doug and Daniel uh, my bet is looking good <laughs> as as it stands right now as I'm recording this on Tuesday, December 8th. Doug is up something like $720,000 after approximately 8,000 hands. So, uh, yeah, I do have a bet that Doug would e- emerge victorious. We know that heads up swings can be ridiculous. I'm not exactly making the classic mistake of counting and or spending those winnings yet I'm not I'm not naive enough to think that this one's in the bag or whatever but it is nice to have such a commanding lead I've been watching some of the action um, you know it's cards down so it's hard to know exactly what's going on I love the commentary on both sides but I think it would have been great if they just could have licensed one official commentary team You know, so that we don't have competing commentators on Team Daniel versus Team Doug. It's almost like the news nowadays. It's hard to know what the truth is when everything is given with a a slant to it. So I guess it's just a microcosm of the world that we live in right now. Uh, I promise I'm not going to go any deeper into politics on this episode than that. But I will say... I think Daniel's playing a lot better than I thought he would, uh, and that's not meant as a snide comment because he's down seven hundred thousand dollars. The truth is, everyone, including Daniel, agreed that Daniel is an underdog before they started playing. It was just a question of how big of an underdog is he? Is he four to one? Is he five to one? Is he ten to one? You know, I don't think that anyone's a ten to one underdog unless they've never played poker before just because heads up is a lot of variance, even over 12,500 hands or 25,000 hands, whichever it ends up being, and I'm willing to make a very large bet that it ends up being the full 25,000. And the reason for this is simple. Yes, both players have the right, but not the obligation, so the option, if you will, to cancel, uh, you know, wave the white flag, if you will, after 12,500 hands. Obviously, the guy who's winning is probably not going to do that. So it's really up to, in all likelihood, Daniel, halfway through the match, if he wants to say, you know what, I'm in way too deep here. I'm losing too much money. I give up. You win. Thank you for the challenge. Best of luck in your endeavors, whatever. I don't see that happening at all because Daniel has a lot of people that have bet on him to win. So if he's down, say, a million dollars, after twelve thousand hands, he's not going to say, well, that was fun. Okay, everybody, pay the man his money. That's not going to happen. I just don't see a scenario where that happens. The only scenario where that might have happened is if Daniel would have been down some obscene amount of money, you know, like four million, five million or more, where it's just there's no chance, there's virtually no chance of of coming back from from that. So why should I just keep playing with this guy against whom I'm a major underdog and just continue to lose more money when it's clear that I'm not going to win the challenge? If we get to 12,000 and Daniel is down, say, a million or a million and a half, I don't think he would ever quit under those circumstances because that's, whether it sounds like it or not, that's absolutely recoupable within the next 12,000 hands. Someone asked me on Twitter whether I think that towards the end, Daniel might employ more of a kill-fill type of style, which if you've never read that book or are familiar with the strategy, kill-fill is basically how to beat a player when you know that you're a huge underdog. And it's really a tournament strategy that says, basically, if you have what appears to be a coin flip type of hand, you just raise really big, like way over-bet raise, and then force them to fold... A strong hand like ace-king where they don't want to take that flip and then you just win the pot or you have a 50-50 chance of winning and actually David Sklansky writes about this in one of his many works about a strategy that would basically teach someone how to play the main event in about five minutes if you flop a flush draw you just go all in and even the best player in the world would have a hard time beating that strategy. I mean, you're not a favorite to win, but it kind of minimizes your disadvantage. So what it really comes down to, if you take it from a bird's eye view, if you will, is that the player who's the underdog should want to invite variance. And the player who's the favorite should want to minimize variance. Because when my skill is greater than yours. You are counting on luck to beat me, is what it comes down to. So therefore, when I'm in a pot against a player that is clearly better than I am, I can remember uh, day five of the main event in 2018, which is the one where I had my deep run that was on TV and everything. I was at a table seated to the right of Daniel Alai, which is not fun, okay? Let me just say that's not fun. But when I got into a couple of pots with him, I made my raises larger than I otherwise would have, my bets bigger than I otherwise would have because I wanted to invite the variance because that's really my only shot of, of beating him. I'm not going to outmaneuver or outplay <laughs> Daniel Lai. That's just not going to happen. So uh, that's kind of an example where I applied those techniques. So if I would normally raise to two and a half, x let's say he's in the big blind when i'm in the small blind and it folds to me and i want to play the pot if i might normally make it two and a half or three x here i would raise to five x even with a strong hand like ace king because i just don't even really want to play from out of position against him now the problem is if i'm in that situation and i get pocket aces and i've already established this pattern i need to raise five x so that he can't just sniff out that I'm only doing this with my marginal to decent hands, but not my premium hands. That's just a little aside there, give you a little insight into how to uh, use that kill fill style, if you will. Uh, And I think that Daniel, getting back to Daniel and Doug here, I think that Daniel should consider it, especially if he continues to suffer this losing streak that he's on. Uh, Well, it's actually not a streak. I think he booked a very modest win Maybe last Friday. Uh, I'm not sure, but um, everything's up online. You guys can watch every hand if you want. Um, So I think that in this situation, Daniel should seriously consider making much larger raises, much larger bets, and just even the regular standard opens that he's doing rather than opening to, I think he's doing like 2.5 or 2.2, whatever he's doing. Opening, maybe opening 3x every hand until... Doug makes that adjustment, which I think that Doug will fairly quickly because that's really where Doug's strength always used to be when he was the top heads-up, no-limit player in the world. Well, at least arguably the top, one of the best for sure, is that he would adjust to his opponent's mistakes. Now, he entered this match saying, all I really need to do is approximate game theory, optimal poker, and I will win the match because Daniel's not going to be able to do that or anywhere close to it as well as I do. But if Daniel decides to start inviting variants by overbetting and over raising wherever he can, it could get interesting because the pots in general will get bigger and it might be fun to watch the cat and mouse game that would then almost certainly ensue because Doug is going to want to exploit that. I just don't think he has it in him To continue being a GTO bot while Daniel is clearly opening himself up to exploitation so towards the end of this match things could get interesting and it should be fun to watch and see whether or not Daniel decides to go that route assuming he's a little bit down or a lot down when there aren't that many hands left to play at this point he probably sees it as well it's still relatively early we're about a third of the way through the match overall, so I'm not going to start taking any unnecessary risks. But, we shall see. Alright, last thing for this episode. I wanted to go over a hand that I played not in that $7 with Rebuys tournament, even though I won that one. I looked through that one and kind of did a hand history review briefly. There weren't really any key decisions. Not No hands that I really think are Worthy of the podcast, to be honest, Uh, it was pretty standard stuff. Like I raise with King Queen, flop a Queen, bet for value, turn brings a flush draw, opponent leads into me, like whatever. There's just uh, there aren't really hands that I wanted to say. Oh, that one! I really want all the listeners to hear about about this hand. Maybe when we got a little bit shorthanded, there were some fun moments in like the final three or four players but yeah i don't really want to talk about that tournament too much i'm glad i won it because it replenished some lost funds in my bankroll on on the site but I, i do want to talk about another tournament i played on this past sunday which is called the players appreciation tournament now i think this is a very bold name that the, uh, the site puts out something called a player's appreciation tournament and they rake it. So if you really appreciate the players, do a tournament that's rake free. But that's neither here nor there. We know that they're in business to make money and that they're experts at marketing, pretending they're doing you a favor when they're not. So you really appreciate me, right? You guarantee it's a $100 buy-in with a $100,000 guaranteed prize pool. That's the good news because they're only having players from... New Jersey and Nevada. And so that's a much bigger payout than you're used to. I mean, first prize in this tournament is always at least twenty-five thousand dollars, which is pretty incredible when it only costs a hundred bucks to play. In addition, there are added prizes. There's basically like a lottery of all the players who entered the tournament, and then they have, I think, ten or twenty added prizes after the fact. I think the biggest one is a thousand dollars. And it's only 5000 in total for these added prizes. But uh, I did win one in one of the times. I probably played this tournament eight or nine times, maybe 10. And I did win an added prize once, but I just won 100 bucks, So I basically got a free buy-in there. Um, of course, there are re-entries for like three or four hours in this thing. It goes on forever. Uh, but yeah, it's a really fun tournament. And they have tons of satellites for it. For some players, the $100 price point is like you or me playing a high roller. So for those players, this is their one shot that they take. They usually do this tournament once or twice a month. So this is kind of their big Sunday million. So it's a great setup for the pros because you get to play in a relatively low buy-in, just $100, and you get players that normally would not play any other $100 tournament. So it's a good mix. And... It creates action. So I wanted to go over a hand that I played in this tournament last week. I had an average stack. It was early in the in the game, uh, maybe two hours in, so registration was still open. The blinds were 150, 300, and a 40 ante from each player. I'm at a nine-handed table, so there's 810 in the middle, 810 chips. We have fourteen thousand five hundred, which is maybe just a tick above average. So we're just kind of hanging in there at this point. Uh, Nothing big has really gone on as far as we're concerned. Just keeping up with the with the average, which is fine. Uh, So the cutoff in this hand, he min raises to six hundred with ten thousand behind. Now that's the starting stack in this tournament is ten thousand. So Now, let's talk about the cutoff for a second, just so you know who we're talking about here. Uh, He hasn't been at the table for very long, but he's been very active. He's in a lot of pots, and he strikes me as uh, a recreational player who may be just kind of having fun. Maybe he's satellited into this for five bucks or something like that. Uh, I have not been impressed with his play or his ability to mix up his game. He just seems like if you fold to him, he likes to raise... If he hits the flop, he bets the flop. If he misses the flop, he does not C-bet. And so he's pretty easy to uh, beat, I think, in the long run. Uh, the button calls, and now he's got 35000 Now, he also strikes me as a lose type of guy. Now, the average stack right now is about 14000 This guy's got almost three times that. So he's got a lot of chips. Uh, he's been very active. Many times early in a tournament, your chip leader's Will be kind of players that just play every hand, they run good for a while, they end up accumulating a lot of chips. Uh, it's a well known fact that in the 50 year history of the World Series of Poker main event, the day one chip leader has never won the tournament. <laughs> the stat may actually be he's never made the final table, I think that might be the case, although I'm not sure about that, but I know for a fact that that player has never won the tournament before and it kind of stands to reason right because if you play too loose you might be hot for a while in the beginning but eventually you're, you're not going to be able to keep your, your chip lead because sooner or later luck is going to catch up with you right so uh, that's the kind of player we have here he likes to call he likes to see flops he's kind of treating poker as a slot machine and he hopes that he hits the jackpot that's kind of his general style uh, and now we are in the small blind holding the jack nine of hearts, jack of hearts, nine of hearts. So it's gone raise from the cutoff and call from the button. And now here we are in the small blind. Now, if you told me that you want to throw this hand away because you don't want to be out of position against, you know, at least two loose players holding a hand that is a trap hand, you know, how happy are we going to be if we flop a, top pair of jacks or nines I don't know if you said that you don't get involved in this spot and that you just want to throw your hand away I will not argue with that one little bit okay Uh, especially when we talk about the big blind who is a loose aggressive type who actually has the tournament chip lead at the moment this guy has 46,000 in his stack so he's got all of us covered by a lot he has accumulated those chips, from what I've seen, by taking all those gambles. Like I, like I was describing, that maybe Daniel will start doing when the when the match starts getting more desperate, or I should say he starts getting more desperate to win that match. Uh, that's how this guy's been playing. Like lots and lots of raising, lots of taking a shot when he's got a flush draw. He's happy to get it in with a flush draw or call off with middle pair, and it's worked out for him. You know, he's hit a few cards and he's. He's running hot, so he's got all the chips, and he is the tournament chip leader. Uh, So if, considering all of that, you want to throw your jack nine of hearts away, I'm cool with it, okay? I I have no problem with that. I also have no problem with my play, which was to call and try to see a flop. I believe that I have a, a strong skill advantage over all three of my opponents in this hand, Uh, I will not see the flop if the big blind puts in a big raise, obviously, even if the other two players call, I'm just not going to see a flop with Jack nine in that spot, especially because a big raise would, would end up being a a too big of a percentage of my stack. And I don't want to end up with an SPR of one and a half out of position against three opponents and then flop a Jack and have to lose a whole stack. So forget that. That's not the plan. The plan is to call here and hope that the big blind checks. So. I do call, and he does check. So, so far, everything's going great according to plan. So, we now have 2,700 in the pot, and the flop comes king of hearts, queen of diamonds, six of diamonds. So, hero holding the jack nine of hearts, and the flop of king, queen, six, with one heart. So, we got some stuff going on here, right? We got a little... A little gut shot, right? You got a little gut shot to the nuts there. You got a backdoor flush draw. We are multi-way here, so there is a case to be made for just leading here or getting really frisky and checking to the razor, looking to check raise because there's so many cards that we can barrel on the turn, right? We might make a pair on the turn. We might pick up a flush draw or a straight or a straight draw. There's a lot of things can go well for us. So I like when you have kind of what Ed Miller would call a robust holding. And this this is a rather robust holding. I like the idea of finding spots to play around because we're going to have some value too, right? We might have played king queen this way. So check raising with that hand. So we need to have some bluffs as well to balance our range as at this point, I'm sure all of you know. So that's all well and good we decide to start with a check here but you could actually lead right out into the whole field if you want to and i wouldn't really uh have a problem with that if you wanted to do it some of the time so we do check and the big blind checks and then the cutoff the original razor bets 1k into 2700 so a decidedly small bet and then the button calls it so Do we want to spring the trap here? I mean, the idea was we might want to check raise. But, you know, when the button calls, I have to just hold on. Like, now if we check raise here, we're going to be bluffing two of these loose players. And that's usually not a good strategy. Not to mention the fact that the big blind hasn't spoken yet because he would probably have always checked everything to the razor, whether he has something or not. So with all that in mind, I decided to just call here. Had the button not called, I may have gotten frisky. But as it stands, you know what? I'm being offered a pretty decent price to see at least one more card. And I'm again going to call and hope again that the big blind doesn't raise it up. So I just call and the big blind folds. So three of us are going to see the turn. And now... With 7,000 in the pot and the cutoff only having 9,000 behind for the effective stack. By the way, Hero having now 13,000 behind. Uh, We see a turn card, which we like a lot. It's the Queen of Hearts. So our board is now King, Queen, Six, Queen with two hearts. Now we are going to have a lot of Queens in our range. Right, it does make sense to overcall on the flop with a hand like queen jack, queen ten, queen nine. Like there are some hands that would make sense to call a small bet even after the button called as well. So it is very possible that we would have a queen. For that reason, I strongly considered. I gave a lot of thought to leading out and I still think that leading out is a good play here. We have a straight flush draw, but we also have a hand that is kind of uncapped at this point. If you think about it, I mean, we could have a full house. We could have king-queen here. We could have pocket sixes for a full house. So because we are uncapped and because our play so far has been consistent with all of those hands, and also because we will not always be receiving this pot if we get there in other words we could be up against a better flush when we get there we could also be up against a full house and therefore be drawing dead at this point it's probably better to find that out now so leading out here on the turn with a small bet i think makes a lot of sense at the same play you'd want to do if you had the pocket sixes or any queen You want to be able to have some lead out range. So, you need some bluffs in that lead out range. And I like having the kind of hand that I'm going to throw away. So, in other words, if we lead out here and bet 2,300 into 7K and then the cutoff or the button shoves on us, we're going to fold our hand. And the reason why is because we're probably drawing dead when they do that, either up against a higher flush or a full house. So, we're not risking all that much by being blown off our equity here. So leading out with the intention of folding to a raise, I think is a very good play with this vulnerable, not that strong flush draw with a straight draw. Because when we get raised, I just don't think we're always drawing to a winning hand anyway. So it's fine with me to rate, to bet fold. Uh, I did not do that this time though. And the reason why is simply the, Cutoff has an awkward stack. If I bet 2300 and he shoves, I'm almost getting the price, especially when there is that one magical card that could give us a straight flush. I like to draw to a straight flush <laughs> here because the potential payout if somebody else happens to make a flush would be so great. So I don't want to get blown off my equity just for that little part. But also, it's just he doesn't really have a short enough stack for me to call his shove or a big enough stack for me to feel happy about folding so it's close but I decided to just check but I definitely wanted to explore the option of leading on the turn because we have a lot more queens in our range than our opponents do so we do check and it checks through so all three of us check and now the river is that magical ten of hearts Wow, a straight flush, you know. It's just so beautiful to see that card, and especially on a board like this. Now, at this point, obviously, we're hoping that one of our opponents is slow playing a full house or even quads. We're hoping that one of our opponents just made a flush with this river card uh, or even a straight, right? Maybe you'll get called by a straight. I don't know, maybe. Certainly, these, these type of players will call you Sometimes, at least, with a straight when the the board is paired and the flush comes in. It does happen. So we have only 13,000, and the pot is about 7,000. What would you do in this spot? I mean, do we want to try to make a value bet here and make sure we get called by a straight? Or do we want to go for big value? Well, I just shoved all in. I think that against tougher opponents, that might not be a great play. But against these guys, I think that they are not experienced in folding relatively big hands. So I just went all in and I said, I hope one of these guys has a flush or better. And of course, they wouldn't be able to throw it away. So I just stick it all in and they both called. (laughs) So the cutoff had the ace jack of clubs. So he made a straight there on the river. And then the uh, button had the ace five of hearts. For the Ace High Flush. Notice I don't call it the Nut Flush. Because when the board is paired, that is not the nuts. It's just the highest possible flush. But it's not the nuts. So, uh, obviously, this pot was a game changer. Put me in a great position in the tournament. Uh, I tripled up, so I now had like a a three times average stack. Uh, I did not cash in this tournament, though, because I took a very bad beat my thoughts on this hand i think that my opponents made a lot of mistakes in this hand i think that the cutoff should not continuation bet on this flop uh it's king queen six and he's got ace jack and there are no clubs on the flop and he's got clubs in his hand i just don't think that flopping a gut shot against three opponents that's not a spot when you want to try to do A continuation bet. I mean, there's a king and a queen. There's just no, almost no chance that his continuation bet is going to work. And he's not ever going to pick up equity on the turn unless he slams a 10. So I I just don't like betting there. I don't think that's a good play. I also think that the button should consider three betting pre-flop. I mean, we talked about ace five suited a lot on this podcast. I love ace five suited to mix in with my value range for 3-betting because Ace-5 suited is never a big underdog pre-flop against any hand other than pocket Aces. So even against like Ace-King, because you have the suitedness and the connectedness and the wheel possibilities and everything else, uh, Ace-5 is something like 30-32% even against Ace-King, which isn't so bad. You're really only in sad shape against pocket aces and you block that so that's why a lot of top pros and a lot of solvers will recommend using ace five suited as a three betting hand at least some of the time uh, before the flop and some of them will even say you can put it into your five bet bluffing range as well now that doesn't mean he has to always three bet it but you know on the button against a loose opener it feels like a great spot for a three bet and then Of course, I would have had to fold, but that's results-oriented thinking. Uh, But yeah, he does want to knock the blinds out. It's great to play in position, heads up against a loose opponent. And that's what our button player has here. So I really think that he should have considered that play. I mean, we can certainly talk about what happens once the queen pairs on the turn. Like, nobody bets, okay? Ace jack still has nothing, doesn't bet again, having been called twice. I have no problem with that. The player on the button, though, with the ace-five of hearts, has now picked up the ace-high flush draw, and it's been checked to him now. He should probably consider semi-bluffing there. I considered it with my jack-nine of hearts. If I do a defensive one-third-of-the-pot bet, the ace-jack cutoff would have folded, and at least some of the time, the button might have raised me, and then I would have folded. And at that point, I can still win with a jack nine or a 10 but I couldn't possibly know that and I might think that my only out is the 10 of hearts so if I bet and get raised I could end up folding which would make that a great play by the ace five of hearts because I have fairly significant equity in this pot the way the button played his hand really shows us why it's important to find those bluffs you can't just have value And so many of my opponents in the New Jersey, Nevada sphere, if they raise, they just have it. And it's pretty easy to beat them as long as I stay disciplined and fold when they raise. So that'll do it for this episode. I want to thank you guys for listening. Definitely want to be sure to rate and review the podcast. Subscribe, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else we are. We really love when you guys give us a good feedback and help us climb the ranks and escalate the crowded poker podcast charts. And if you're still looking for a website where you can learn from top-notch coaches like Andrew Brokus, Colin Moshman, Jared Smith, and of course, my broadcast partner this weekend, the assassinato, Alex Fitzgerald. Look no further than Tournament pokeredge.com. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening.
0: Hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me I love Lock and intuition, play the cards with babes to start And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart Oh, whoa Roll with her, a hot we will be While little gambling is fun when you're with me Russian roulette is not the same without a gun And baby, when it's if it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun Oh, whoa, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, 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 oh. i get her hot, show her what